Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. On this episode of the Nashville Sounding Board, I'm joined by Theta Murphy and Dr. Seku Franklin, two of the organizers behind the Charter Amendment Campaign for a Community Oversight Board to essentially police the police. A community oversight board would be tasked with investigating allegations of police misconduct. Their campaign, Community Oversight Now, was launched on April 4th of this year, 50 years after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., a vocal advocate for community oversight boards. There are over 200 entities of community oversight in cities around the country. Uh, To introduce my guests, Ms. Murphy is a local activist who works as a suicide crisis care counselor, and she uh, filed an ethics complaint against former Mayor Megan Berry after her affair with her bodyguard came to light. And Dr. Sekou Franklin is a professor of political science at Middle Tennessee State University, where he has taught for 15 years. So for each of you, what is one important thing that people don't know about your respective backgrounds? I have worked as a crisis counselor for 20 years, and part of that time I did work for the police department. And then I also worked at Fisk at the Race Relations Institute way back in the 90s. Well, i say for me, you know, in Nashville, I think what people may not know is that um, in my earlier years, uh, I did a lot of work with young people, particularly working in mentoring programs and have actually worked at or been in leadership positions in maybe three or four uh, mentoring programs, interventionist programs. This is during my 20s. So this is, you know, some time ago, of course. <laughs> Part of that experience also uh, was also a, a track coach, assistant track coach for three years, coach hurdles. So uh, for high school, that is. <laughs> Very cool. I, I did not know that. And I've known you for a long time. And I like to ask guests for a recommendation for a book. Um, what's a book a recommendation for us? I would say um, it's an older book now, but I would encourage readers to read a book called I've Got the Light of Freedom by, by Charles Payne. And at one time, it, it was a unique work in terms of the civil rights movement history, particularly looking at the role that indigenous groups played in really anchoring the civil rights movement, um, unrecognized, unnamed voices. Um, in m- many respects, what we would call the Community Oversight Now coalitions of, of uh, Mississippi, uh, SNCC organizers. And I think what it does, it, it walks the reader through also how the broader political context impacted uh, locally-based organizing in Mississippi. And the book is particularly important as well because it, 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 it sparked a genre of civil rights historiography that really gave acute attention to unrecognized, unnamed, um, lesser-known voices in, in the civil rights movement, but also the black power movement and also uh, organizing across the country. I would say anything by Octavia Butler, but particularly the um, the parable series, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sore, because in her imagination doing, she imagined an alternative universe in which we're making America great again. And that's come true. Of course, the community oversight 
uh, push nationally has deep roots going back to uh, Dr. King. And here locally, I think um, activists have said that people have pushed for this, have wanted a community oversight board for years and years. Um, But it kind of only recently came to prominence following the officer-involved shooting death of Jacques Clemens uh, last year. Can you talk a little bit about the formulation of community oversight now and how that sprung out of the death of Jacques Clemens in the KC Housing Project? So in the immediate aftermath of the um, of the murder, when the community was getting together, we got together and met and came up with six different points. Community oversight was one of those points. And that's where, and one of those demands that we were making. Um, when we went to council, um, that was one of the six points that we were demanding when we went to the council meeting and, and demanded to be heard at the council meeting. So that's how community oversight got to be so important. Body cameras was also on there, and it seems like those are like the body cameras is the only thing that got moved and we are still continuing to push for community oversight. And, and at the time when uh, Mr. Clemens was killed, and you had uh, the Justice for Jacques Coalition was spearheading a lot of efforts. You also had um, meetings with the local NACP. You had um, other groups that were also engaged in the process as well. So the Community Oversight Now Coalition was basically a network of groups that came together um, to respond to the killing of Mr. Clemens, but also at least advanced the idea of a community oversight board, which seemed to be, at least at the time, and I think still is, a consensus-based policy that, that, that binded various interests who were emerging, Black Lives Matter, for example, emerging out, out, of, out of that process. But, but the idea of oversight board or, or civilian review board or citizens review board des- described differently um, has been around in Nashville for, for decades. And so you mentioned going to council, and then that ultimately led to an attempt via ordinance to form a community oversight board. And that was only backed by, I believe, five of the 40 council members. What did you learn from that experience in council, and how did that lead you now to trying to do a charter amendment instead? It led us to believe that it is just too easy for council members to be swayed by by outside forces. The FOP via the two former police officers that are on council really made a push to kill the bill. And it was successful. It was successful. We never got to have the public hearing, which we were hoping to have, where the community could come and talk about and let the council members know of, of their experiences and voice why they supported community oversight. They killed the bill in committee, so it just never got a chance to see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our idea was that, you know, when we, when we went to council, from our perspective, and I could say maybe my, my perspective especially, was that it was, was going to be a heavy lift that the council's, council was going to set a high bar for our coalition to climb in part because of the influence of the Fraternal Order of Police, or FOP, um, their ability to give campaign donations. I think in part because of intimidation or a fear, I think, I would say a fear by some council members to not go against the MNPD or Fraternal Order of Police, that there's kind of a, 
I call it that. I call it. I, I used to use the use the term that that council members in the middle class of Nashville look to the police in the same way that America's look to the military. There's a localized patriotism or localized jingoism in which um, MMPD get the benefit of the doubt on most cases. And so to climb that bar, especially for a, a coalition that was heavily comprised of people of color, African-Americans, black folks, particularly black women, um, and especially for coalition in which many of the, the principal frontline organizers and activists were not part of the so-called respectable class of African-Americans. Um, they, were, they, were, they were activists or organizers um, who maybe didn't have the credentials, so to speak. Um, so it was always going to be a high bar given, you know, the idea of the fear, the money of FOP, the intransigent influence that, that Chief Anderson has in, um, in MMPD and in Nashville. So we got through a first reading, which is kind of a consent consent reading, a consent a consent. Oh, vote. they tried to kill it at first reading. They tried to kill it at first reading, which, yes, was, which, which was unprecedented. Which is, yeah, they tried to kill it at first reading, which is unprecedented, and had to fight it to get had to fight to get it through first reading. And um, we always knew it was a long shot, but our hope was that we could what we what we what we asked our council sponsor to do was to to ask for a public hearing before the second reading. So our hope was to basically have the first reading get to that public hearing and for the first time really have real voices uh, speak to the issue of police accountability in Nashville. And the bill was buried in committee. We tried to get a resolution to set up a task force to study the COB per the recommendations of Megan Barry, former mayor Megan Barry that was killed. And the bill, the legislation was buried in committee and council voted not to discharge it from this committee. And in doing that, council voted not to not to give it a second reading and not to give it a public hearing. Our my belief, I think Theta's belief, our belief is that what the council member the council members who were backing MMPD, what they really didn't want was that public hearing. Because you don't they didn't want dozens of people talking, yes, talking about police accountability in Nashville and telling the broader audience of Nashville you know, this is what it's like to get stopped by police. These are the fears. This is what it's like to have somebody come in your yard, a police officer, and tell you to go back into your house. This is what it's like to have to deal with this. They didn't want to give, they didn't want that to happen. Yeah, they were afraid that that would get out of control. Yeah. They'd had a taste of that yeah. when we came, yeah. you know, after Jacques was killed. Yeah, after Clemens, yeah. Um, the other thing was it was too easy for the FOP to do things like send emails at three, anonymous emails at three in the morning where they are quoting from our social media posts, our personal posts and our page posts. Clearly following. Um, and, and insinuating that we are a bunch of crazy radicals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was it was chilling to kind of see that. Mm -hmm. That they're watch, we, watching you. Because yeah. we also had we also got open records requests. We put up a public open records request, a public records requests, FOI requests and um and but the council process was also this is one of the challenges that with council too is the t the two council members and I'll just be I'll mention them by name frankly uh, council members Primor and Pardue there's a conflict of interest there they have influence on the public safety committee and and Pardue's you know is heavily connected to the police department as as is as is Primor and so but I think and, it's probably not seen that way given you mentioned before that. Most of council, I think a lot of Nashvillians want to give police the benefit of the doubt. That's probably seen the same way as a former teacher 
being involved in matters of of education would yeah. would be seen yeah. as someone Absolutely. with, with Absolutely. profound professional experience. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. With, I agree that, it's, that it is, can be seen that, that, that way by the average by the, by the by the average person who doesn't have a microscopic viewpoint of of counsel. But when you have um, questions coming out, like about Pride March's previous record with with Cyrus Wilson, mm-hmm. and you have lawsuits being filed against Pardue's spouse, West West Precinct Commander. Yeah, <laughs> then you have to wonder, you know. Then it becomes not uh, not their expertise. It becomes now they are they are weighing in on things that that may affect them personally. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the issue of whether or not people believe that police should get the benefit of the doubt, a Vanderbilt poll in April 2017 showed that Metro Nashville Police Department enjoys an 80 percent approval rating. And 88% of white residents approve of the police department, and it's 79% of Hispanics and 66% of African Americans approve. It it certainly seems that someone's personal experience with police affects how they think about the department and policing in general. Well, well, let me speak to that Vanderbilt poll because I'm. I'm a political scientist by by training, and in the Vanderbilt poll, the question was a wrong question. Um, if you look at previous questions on policing and various surveys out there, that's typically around kind of trustworthiness. You know, you, yeah, if you ask if you ask um, if you ask a a person, do you approve of the police department? Of course, they're going to say yes. But if you ask a secondary question, have you had experiences with um, adverse policing? Would you agree with the police department if one found out that there was an unfair consent search? Would you agree with the police department if you found out that um, an investigation was not taken to its full full length? So you have to ask secondary questions. But if you just ask a question about do you agree with the police department, it's like asking Americans, do you agree with the military? But if you don't ask any secondary questions that can offer a broader context, what you're going to get is a poll in which in which you have those numbers that that are there and 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 you're gonna so that's what I would say about that Vanderbilt poll. The recent studies out there, the recent surveys out there on policing ask much more contextualized questions to get at what are the root causes, particularly around racial divisions when it comes to policing and that Vanderbilt poll. Um I mean I respect the Vanderbilt the Vanderbilt uh pollsters who 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 administered that survey. If you ask if you ask people in Birmingham in '63, do you agree with do you agree with Bull Connor, or do you in Albany, Georgia, do you agree with Laurie Pritchett in '62? We can go on and on and on. Many people in Birmingham would probably say, "Well, yeah, I, I, I'm okay with Bull Connor." In fact, you might even get some black folks who might say that just because they're afraid that they may say the wrong answer and they may not know much about how polls are conducted, so they may feel that the poster is. Is doing it. And there's a time in which I just again I just that Vanderbilt poll really got under, got got underneath my skin because it it's, it was used as a political football, and they and still use it against us. So so it's like saying, well, if you looked at when the military was integrated, most Americans disapproved or didn't didn't want the military to be integrated. So does that mean you don't make the right decision and, and desegregate the military? Well, I guess if we can if we can set aside that particular poll question. Regardless of what that level of support is, 
does an 80% approval rating for the police department make a charter amendment an uphill battle? Uh, well, it's going to be uphill battle, but not because of that 80 percent, because you can be you could be agreeable with the police department. You can also be agreeable with the community oversight board. They don't have to be in con- in, in contradiction to each other. That's an important the, the, point. The, the 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 uphill battle will be the, the 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 weight, the political muscle of the fraternal order of police. That's that's an MMPD. That's it's it's the pol- their political muscle. It's not the public opinion of Nashvilleians and you mentioned the poll I didn't want to emphasize this point that there actually was another poll taken during the first during in late September the first week of October the mayor a firm associated with the mayor did a poll primarily around the transit asking about the the tax structure do you pro the tax structure they added added at least one question on the CLB and I was called by a reporter to get my thoughts on it um, I've also asked um, some of Nashville's local reporters to to get a sense of what that poll produced about the COB. In terms of that question, it's never been the results of that of that question have never been. The mayor never reported. The former mayor never reported the results of that of that, of that question. Now, my feeling is if eighty percent of Nashvilleans oppose the COB. And the first week of October, she we would have heard about would, it. Yeah, you, you would have heard about it. So, <laughs> you going can't just back, go from the Vanderbilt poll and pump that up, and then you ask a particular question about COB, and no one knows the finding of it. Going back to former Mayor Megan Berry, what was the nature of her opposition, and how has that potentially shifted under Mayor Briley? We never got a real clear picture of what the nature the exact nature of her opposition was she was just opposed to it we really don't know why even in the meeting that we had with her she never she never really said she why. never came out and said why these are the elements that yes. i don't like yes these are my concerns yeah, she said she had some legal questions about it and our our response to her was we answered all those. we we're we're willing to address the legal issues that's not a that's not a game changer with us and she seemed surprised about that but she never she never said from our perspective. Yeah, so we never got a clear picture of that. And as far as um, the current mayor is concerned, it doesn't seem like he's opposed to the idea. I think he um, he has reached out to us. Um, he he seems a lot more open to the idea. And yeah, and when the coalition was first formed, a few of our coalition members met with. Mayor Mayor Bradley, when he was vice mayor, yeah, I was not involved in those meetings, but they didn't come back. They they came back with a pretty, I think, what a positive assessment of those meetings, or that meeting that they had with with now Mayor Bradley. So I want to get into a little bit the specifics of the community oversight board language that's going to appear on uh, the ballot. What are the key components of the community oversight board? Um, it will be an eleven member board. Seven of those members would be chosen out of through a process, which is still to be determined from the communities that are affected. Yeah. So basically the way the charter is written is seven, seven out of the 11 are chosen by by the community through a, a process. Of, uh, and four out of the seven would be from communities 
um, through various metrics that are from the most adversely affected communities by hyper policing. Because yeah. we want people who yeah. have that experience yeah. to sit on the board. And then two people would be chosen by council and, and two people by the mayor. And so part of this is they would investigate the allegations of misconduct. They would put forth the recommendations for potential punishment. There would be an annual report issued um, about the data. And the other piece, the other part of it is that they would, and this is, there's also a staff that's that's would be assigned to the board with the director and the assistant director and uh, um, a legal resource person, not a, not an attorney, but a legal resource person, not a, not an official attorney of, of Metro, but a legal resource person. And and out of, what that will then provide is is what we're finding useful is in some cities where there's either a citizens review board, a civilian review board, or oversight board, or or police commission, however one wants to describe it, um, that the boards can be effective at producing reports and recommendations for policy changes. So, for example, they can assess use of force. They can assess. Um, they can off, offer research on de-escalation. Um, they can offer research on um, implicit bias. They can offer research on um, you know gender-based issues or how do you respond, for example, um, to LGBT youth who may be displaced from their homes but are, are affected by policing. So one side is investigating allegations of misconduct. Um, the other side is is the ability to produce reports, research, and do more analytical assessments that can offer policy recommendations for improving policing. Other cities that have had a community oversight board, how have they proved to be beneficial? What are some comparable cities that are kind of best case scenarios? And then what are some potential pitfalls? Because I know not all of these have been successful at all. Well, um, let me just kind of point out that Many cities that have community oversight boards or civilian review boards are on our second or third iteration because the first wave of oversight boards um, went dormant or were proved to be ineffective. What we're finding out in cities across the country in terms of the best best case best practices are funding matters a great deal. Um, we've asked for as much as as much as one point five million dollars annually. Um, and there's probably some room in there um, to undergo investigations, have a staffing structure. Without funding, you can almost bet that a civilian review board in many cities that we've looked at um, are going to be are going to be um, are going to be kind of toothless. Toothless. Um, civilian review boards that are effective um, have some variation of subpoena power or compulsory power, which this one would have. This one would have. The equivalent of subpoena power has what's called, quote unquote, the power to compel. But that is a charter provision that's in the charter that gives agencies that power, which in layperson's terms for national equals equals the equivalent, the equivalent of subpoena power. And mm -hmm. the Tennessee, Tennessee Attorney General um, um, offered a, an opinion on that um, that verified that. So that's also um, a best case practice, having independence. Um, where you don't have um, police officers basically controlling the board and steering the board. Um, those are some of the best case practices. I think in terms of some of the pitfalls of, of a board is that sometimes these boards are developed and after four or five years, no one pays attention to the boards and then 
there's no accountability or they become dormant or ineffective. So I think um, a, civilian, a community oversight board is going to have to have constant engagement by community folks, constant public hearings, constant engagement to be effective over the, over the long term. If you are enjoying the Nashville Sounding Board, please leave a rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or your app of choice. So in 2015, there was a Ban the Box campaign that Dr. Franklin was involved in, ultimately did not make it on uh, the ballot. It was also a charter mimic campaign. What did you learn from that Ban the Box campaign that has helped inform how you're planning and uh, carrying out this charter amendment campaign? Well, you know, one thing with Band of Box that we learned, um, and I do think this is important for charter referendums, is that I do think it was important for us to go to council um, to legitimate the need for, which we try to do with Band of Box, that to go to council to legitimate the council process. And if the council process doesn't work out, then it gives everyday people the opportunity to lead a petition drive uh, system. Um, with Band of Box, we had to be very innovative because we had no money. We operated really from a resource deficit. So we basically, uh, our core committee had to tap into our own networks. Um, and it was literally our friends and family members and their friends and family members. Um, we had to uh, rely upon civic organizations and the churches. Um, it was literally um uh, operating a coalition with the resource deficit without the kind of monetary resources. Um, and it was an advantage for us because it forced us to kind of build political power, independent political power. It forced us to tap into indigenous resources. The challenge, of course, was doing the more intensive vetting of petitioners, verifying whether they're, they're in precinct, it was called in precinct registered voters, verifying whether they've been purged, those kinds of things become much more difficult because um, your ability to maximize uh, um, uh, a vote builder or a van database or a paid staff, we we didn't have that kind of ability to to do that. So, but what it what I think it taught us too was, um, which I think is something that we learned on the front end of the oversight now is is inter- intersectionality. That what happens in the case of Band of Box it was a voting rights issue because many of our voters were purged for being what's called infrequent voters. It was issue about incarceration because some of our folks were not able to sign a petition because they've been, they've been incarcerated. So it forced us to think not just about necessarily ban the box as a front end issue, but as an intersectional issue that affects um, uh, voting rights that affects economic justice. So I think with oversight now coalition, we um, we are also tapping into our networks, um, our indigenous linkages, and I think a lot of the strategizing is similar, but then there's a lot of things that are different from the Band of Boss campaign. Um, and I think we have, with the Oversight Now Coalition, we have more authoritative organizations that are taking the lead in collecting petitions and uh, you want to add to that at all, Theta? Uh, yeah. So. And what's the status of the campaign? I know that for a charter amendment, you need 10% of the voters in the last countywide election to sign the petition. And got a little bit unlucky in that we had super high turnout for transit. And then, of course, the special election for mayor. 
What is your target number, um, and what is what would be the date then for uh, for an election? We have not yet been able to determine which which election that they're going to pull. The election commission is going to pull from, so we are still in the process of of trying to get that information so that we can so we can know exactly what we're shooting for, and we're we're thinking that we're going to turn them in by August second which would be about the time before the November, how many yeah. days before the November, November yeah, election? It's, yeah, it's yeah. going to be voted on in November, um, assuming we make the the required certified petitions. But we're in a legal limbo because the trigger election is going to be determined by the uh, Metro Law, Law Department, we think. We think. Um, so this week, the Tennessee NACP, I think, is going to help us have that conversation with them but at this point in time the state election commission and the, the davidson county election commission can't give us the firm date um because we're, we're stuck in the legal in the limbo is it the may 1st election is it the the special election for mayor which may which is a special election um or is it a previous election um and then also We've been informed that we could use the August 2nd election <laughs> as a trigger election. So all that has to be clarified and in the next couple of weeks to determine the exact trigger election that we're, that we're looking for. And all of this is just important because you're, of course, wanting the lowest threshold possible, naturally. What's your pitch that, that when you get me to sign it, I think you'll get me to sign it after we're done here, what is your 30-second, one-minute one pitch? Um, I ask people, first of all, if they're registered voters, and then I say to them that um, we are gathering um, signatures from registered voters so that we can set up an independent body to provide um, oversight of the police department in cases of um, misconduct because the police right now are policing themselves. They are investigating themselves. And it is best to have an independent body to do those investigations. You know, a, a restaurant doesn't police itself. A restaurant has a health inspector that gives it a, a food rating. Um, you, we want the same thing for the police department. And even if you are against the idea of a community oversight board, you should be for democracy. You should be for the, the vote. That means that you can sign a petition and vote against it because you want to give people the idea, opportunity to determine that themselves. So those are some of the things that we say to folks. But if we're speaking to, you know, working class black folks, I mean, before you're done with the first sentence, they say, give me, and they're registered voters, they give me that petition. Um, if you're speaking to um, people who are houseless or homeless, the conversation may be different. But if you're speaking to an average person who may feel everything is okay with the MMPD, you know, the pitch is, you know, if you believe in democracy, it's the same thing. I mean, whether people agree with the transit or not, you know, it's, it's you know, what the, the pro-transit side said was um, even if you vote against it, let them vote, the kind of thing. So that's kind of what we say to folks. Following the Jacques Clemens shooting, Officer Lippert, was cleared of all charges. Uh, he's now on desk duty, still working for the department. And similarly, in other 
uh, cities around the country when there have been uh, officer-involved shootings, even where there are body camera footage. Frequently, officers are not charged, um, and there's kind of not a resolution through the judicial system. A lot of people would say, well, that's our uh, judicial system taking a look and you know clearing the officer and moving on. So how does a community oversight board work alongside a uh, judicial system that may decide not to press any charges, may decide that nothing wrong happened? How then would a community oversight board come in and recommend certain discipline? Well, we just look at what happened after um, the shooting occurred. So the police came in, and within a few hours, they were already speaking as if they had cleared Officer Lippert. Um, and then they like made it official oh, about a week later, which then ended up with the TBI coming in. And you could say that when they signed that memo of understanding after that, so that the TBI is now going to come in and look at that, you could say that that took care of that. But the idea of community oversight is that the voices of the people who are being aggressively policed like that are not being heard in any of those investigations and they need to be heard. That perspective needs to be considered, not just a law enforcement perspective where you just look at, well, did they follow policy and was that the best police tactic? Well, how did the people in the community feel about that? How were they affected by this happening in their front yards where their children could see it, where they could hear the gunshots that perspective is being left out, and it needs to be included. The Community Oversight Board, there's limitations to it. One of the, one of the things that is in limbo is if there's an ongoing criminal investigation, then the ability to grab evidence is going to be limited in terms of the COB. So that's one of the challenges. But one of the things, if there's an ongoing investigation that may be extended and if there's a COB investigation, the COB can do a lot of things. For example, when Mr. Clemens, um, the family didn't get his clothes back uh, for six months, right? Six months, yeah. The family got his phone back. It took a year. Was it? And only after they filed yeah, a lawsuit. Yeah, only after they filed a lawsuit. Those oh, are and it was badly mangled. Yes. Completely torn apart. Yes. Um, so... Those are the things in terms of working around the edges of an ongoing investigation and dealing with police accountability that are important. I believe there's a MNPD policy that, um, and I'm not going to get my facts correct, but I think, Theta, you can say about a 30-day, within a 30-day period of time, this, the, the, the MNPD has a process for investigating use of force. Okay. They're, they're, they're time-stamped in how long they have to do that. I don't know the time, but they're time-stamped. But they're not time-stamped in how long they have to remedy or to address the issue or to publicize the results. So although you have, again, to go back to Mr. Clemens, although you have a shooting that takes place around the edges and in the broader, broader ecosystem of policing, there are things that the COB could do that may not necessarily directly relate to whether or not Lipper's going to be indicted or charged with charged with charged with a crime, but there are things that are extremely very important in terms of you know that that the COB could do, and I think you know also too just you know I think it's important if, to to look at what Ms. Theta said, 
What happened in the aftermath of, of the shooting of Mr. Clemens? What was going on in that community in the week and two and three weeks after that shooting? What was the relationship like with that community and the police in which that community was ground zero for the most controversial police killing that the city has seen in 20 years? <laughs> and I think we, we do a disservice when we only look at these incidents as policy issues. Mm-hmm. Did he did he break policy? Did he break a law? Because you have violated and traumatized the community. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why policing is not working now is because those considerations are left out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that that was the most kind of controversial and high profile killing at the hands of a Metro police officer that we've seen in uh, decades, maybe ever. Why do you think, though, it didn't get the national residents that dozens of other shootings have had there are too many of them there's just too damn many of them and so we only really hear about in the new york times and uh, cnn ones that are maybe kids or Mm -hmm. there's you know particularly good video or something is that the reason yeah Mm -hmm. and you know i mean nashville has a has a machine has a has a has a public relations machine that celebrates itself as a its city and it's, and it's, Anderson knows how to work it. Yes, and it's it's it, it it so it's hard to it's it's very good stagecraft on a part of on a part of uh, MNPD and I think a lot of the boosters of Nashville to present Nashville as a racially harmonious city. It's and there's a lot of research on this. There's some research on this in terms of Nashville in terms of they call the etiquette or racial etiquette of Nashville. And I think that kind of stagecrafting. In Nashville, it's so institutional and part of the political culture that it's hard to, to to present an alternative framework of what's going on in 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 in, in the belly of Nashville. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Theta, you you brought in today a new version of an ethics complaint that you've brought against former Mayor Megan Berry. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that ethics complaint and what the new version entails? Um, We are filing the new version because when we filed the other complaint, we were only allowed to get it, have a hearing on the um, overtime expenses, which were already being investigated by council, which is fine, especially since it seems like council is not following through on, on their investigation. They've scaled it back and we're still waiting and they seem to be dragging their feet. So we're still waiting. So our ethics complaint, our ethics hearing may be the only way that any anybody from the community will get an opportunity to see exactly what, how much was spent, how that transpired, who signed off on it, how any of that happened, how that ball was dropped. How are your questions and your allegations, how is this ethics complaint connected to the issue of community oversight? It start it started off because we feel that her relationship with Sergeant Forrest, and this was the part that was um, struck down through the first round, was part of the reason why we never, why we were never able to get any traction with her. Because as we were saying earlier, we don't have, we never got any reason why she was against it, and. Um, we felt at the time that there that there was a strong suggestion, there was more than uh, just an appearance of, of impropriety, that she was favoring 
police and police policies during her tenure for no reason. And then it comes out she has this relationship with an officer. And that was enough as an ethics question to bring that up for investigation. Um, And she has her own executive order that she signed, which stipulates that if any public official herself included as the mayor. And a former ethics compliance officer. Yes. If there's if there was the appearance of wrongdoing, that that would be an ethics violation. Anything that would impair the public's trust in the openness and integrity of the office. And certainly this whole, you know, this whole sequence of events has impaired the public's trust in, in, to, in the office. And so you're, you think that impairment of public trust in the former mayor is, is still relevant now? Yes, because just removing the mayor did not do anything um, to address the underlying issues that made it possible for, 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 for any of this to happen, for her to, to be able to, to, to misuse overtime or to um, consistently stymie the will of the community because she has a, a secret that she's trying to keep covered up. So there has been no transparency about what the holes were that allowed this to happen and how we and there have been nothing to say we're going to take these steps to keep that from happening in the future. Some of the critics of counsel, subtle critics of counsel of this complaint, maybe overt, they're okay with or they were okay with the overtime question, but they were not okay with the MNPD question <laughs> that you had a head of security, a 30 year officer who had a relationship with the mayor in a police department that's governed by a chief who spent 45 years in the department and knows a lot of things. So not to, not to say that Chief Anderson knew or didn't know, uh, not to say that that had undue influence on Megan Barry's decision-making capacity regarding policing, but at the very least, there should be some investigation or some deeper assessment of whether or not that occurred, whether or not that, that had that influence. So, yes. yeah. And and the other thing is that as far as her pleading guilty to a felony and playing and paying the money and accepting this this plea deal, which is totally closed to the public, we don't know the details of of exactly what she was charged with or what she did. And we need that kind of transparency so that when we as we go forward, if we're going to fix these systems then we have to know what happened. We have to know. As a public, we have to know what happens. So we can't have these these secret proceedings going on, which are secret by law. The only open proceeding would be an ethics hearing. And counsel quit. And I counsel mean, has stopped. Counsel quit. <laughs> counsel, counsel quit. You, the same standard is not being held to a 16-year-old kid from KC mm-hmm. who's locked up for a much lesser offense. <laughs> So you have council members walking around here like they're the second coming of James Madison. But on this issue, the idea of checks and balances, they stop. And so, people and, find that deeply yeah. offensive because of that double double yeah. standard. So beyond anything else about Megan Barry and Sergeant Robert Ford, Sergeant Forrest, it's it's an issue of a deeper level of, of accountability about how governance, how governance operates and for council 
council to just quit. You know, a new person is coming coming in office, or because Megan Barry resigned, is not really a good model of of governance. One kind of final question, just while I have you, about body cameras. Uh, so you mentioned the six uh, recommendations from the Gideon's Army Driving While Black report. One of them was for body cameras. And I was interested to hear your take on uh, body cameras. It's something that Metro is pursuing. A lot of people see as a big solution to this problem. What say you? Well, they say they're proceeding. We still have yet to see a body camera on the street, but they say they're proceeding with it. Um, My biggest issue with uh, the body cameras is that they are only as good as the policy that underlies them, the foundational policy of how they're used. If the policy on how they're used is policy that protects the rights of the officer above all, then body cameras are useless. I mean, I'm sympathetic with the argument that some council members have around body cameras because they because the kind of consensus by maybe liberals or mainstream Democrats coming out of the the killings of Mike Brown and and other folks was that body cameras is a policy intervention. And I think a lot of activists on the ground um, were very critical of that. No, it's not. That's not the end all to be all. Um, it's not what, what, what Theta said in terms of the, the policy behind it. Is the is the issue behind it? So, um, but I think because the initial wave of policy recommendations coming out of those those killings, you know, several years ago, was body cameras. I think they were mistaken in terms of promoting that as a principal primary policy solution to to um, use of force. Um, my I think there are other concerns, um, First Amendment protections issues. Most of the complaints that we're dealing with are in terms of officers involved are domestic complaints. Are there domestic violence complaints that they that the, the cameras make make capture? Are there um, are there children involved? <laughs> um, are there undocumented or, or unauthorized residents in a particular house or community that could be captured by doc, by body cameras? So I think that you need much more concerted thinking about First Amendment issues and and who is going to be protected, particularly the most vulnerable the most vulnerable residents. I'll let you out on this question. How can people support the push for a community oversight board? How can they get involved in the campaign? Sign the petition. (laughs) We are going to be out all summer where two or three are gathered together. We're going to be there with a petition clipboard. If anyone's interested, they can call 615-375-6094, or they can find us. They can email us at NashvilleCOB at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, and you can find us on Twitter as well. Well, perfect. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today, and I hope people now know a lot more about the issue than they did before we started. Thank you. Thank you.